Good afternoon, it's Dr. Danguera's Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 12th day of January, 2023. So, we were discussing mesenchymal stem cells, and I wanted to remind you they have a high proliferative potential, and of course that generates an ability for self-renewal and the result in tissue regeneration. All of these are really good properties for tissue engineering and gene therapy, as I mentioned. Now, there is a mesenchymal origin of chondrocytes. And so when chondrocytes degenerate, mesenchymal stem cells are a good candidate to regenerate that chondrocytic mass. And so because of that, the use of MSCs, as the mesenchymal stem cells, for hyaline cartilage regeneration um, is something that's now being considered. And remember that bone marrow is used as the most common source of MSCs because they are renewable and they're an easy resource to obtain. But they're not the most optimal in terms of biological regeneration, that is division. It's more likely a better source would be adipose-derived stromal vascular fraction, or the ADSVF. Very abundant again in the body and easily available, cheaper, and much more um, prone to manipulation in cell culture. Bone cell differentiation and adipocyte differentiation start at a common progenitor. That's why you can get MSCs that will derive um, chondrocytes from adipose. So that's been known for quite a while. The ability of these MSCs to differentiate in a targeted manner and you know, maintain a chondrogenic phenotype is related to where they are dividing. So that is the local microenvironment. That includes generating a mechanical stress because that's needed to maintain the morphological shape as these MSCs convert, because they're mesenchymal cells. Remember, mesenchymal cells are proliferative and they're also not fully differentiated. That's why the epithelial to mesenchymal transition can generate cell populations that can become potentially um, cancerous cells because they are not polarized. And so they have multiple capacity to differentiate into various cell lineages, most common of which are fibrocytes, as we've been saying. So Local environment for generating these MSCs is really important. It's the same thing that happens, of course, in the natural system. So it is well established that MSCs from people suffering from type 2 diabetes associated with obesity, as well as rheumatoid arthritis, and many of those systemic autoimmune diseases 
lose their therapeutic function and potential for proliferation and differentiation for MSCs. So this goes back to one of the reasons why obese and highly active um, aging athletes have a similar issue with the AC portion of their joints. So there are limitations on using these MSCs in clinical practice. And one of them is, of course, they have the potential to be autoproliferative. And so that's well-established also. And so they're not, they're not as commonly used as you might think for that kind of tissue therapy. Now, hyaline cartilage proliferation occurs at a very low oxygen tension between 1% and 3% molecular oxygen. And you know that normal oxygen levels are up to 23. So what this low oxygen tension will be um, sensed as is hypoxia. And in fact, hypoxia enhances chondrogenesis. So there is a factor, a transcription factor called HIF1-alpha. That's hypoxia-induced factor 1-alpha. And because it is generated at low oxygen tensions, it becomes a key mediator for the expression of the transcriptional level, because it is a transcription factor, for type 2 collagen and this protein agrican, as well as the a new transcription factor, SOX9. All of those three transcripts are enhanced in expression uh, in hypoxic conditions. Now, a little bit about the hyaline cartilage. That's the most common type. And it's composed of a type 2 collagen and a chondromucoprotein. And this, this cartilage has a glassy appearance. And so you have numerous chondrocytes that generate this cartilage. And the chondrocytes are located within a lacunae surrounded by the cartilage they are starting to generate. And these cells have really small nuclei, and they also have a great number of lipid droplets. Now, those lipid droplets are the source of energy, because after lipase-mediated removal of the fatty acid from the glycerol backbone, remember lipid droplets are primarily triacylglycerol, Fatty acids can then be esterified to coenzyme A, it's a thioester, and then acyl-CoA is transferred then to acyl-carnitine through the carnitine palmitoyl transferases one and two reactions that are outer then inner mitochondrial movement of those fatty acids from those oil droplets. And then you get beta-oxidation, you make ATP because beta-oxidation of fatty acids is going to generate a great deal of NADH and FADH2. So that's what those um, uh, fat deposits inside these uh, cartilage systems are there for. They're there for a ready bioenergetic uh, source. So again, hypoxia-inducible factor is a key mediator here and it'll generate the proteins necessary for that hyaline cartilage. So what is agrican? Again, it's an aggregated glycoprotein complex. 
it's actually a proteo as member of a proteoglycan the monomer is and the monomer is variably called agrican or versican protein is actually essential for the extracellular matrix in this cartilaginous tissue and it is a uh, proteoglycan that could stand high levels of compression which is necessary for the cartilage there are mutations that have been described and when you get mutations in agrican that's the acan gene actually in humans um, it's been reported to uh, be involved in the presentation of skeletal dysplasia and even spinal degeneration and there are multiple splice variants of that polypeptide just thought i would bring that into focus for you so cartilage extracellular matrix actually has a very high water content about 80 percent and i mentioned before that also it is very low permeability and then that because of that when you um exert a load on that ec on that cartilage on the cartilage ecm you quickly increase the hydrostatic pressure and that in fact you can vary between 1 to 18 megapascals and that's again due to the high water content so physiological uh, levels of hydrostatic pressure are about 5 megapascal and at that point you'll enhance the synthesis of the cartilage matrix whereas a high hydrostatic pressure say 25 mpa will induce that pro osteoarthritic effect here's where you're going to get collagen 2 in agrican inhibition so you're not going to get expression of those two genes plus you're going to get an increased expression of metalloproteases uh, and so you get the idea how this can lead to the pro osteoarthritic genesis okay all right so i wanted to make sure that was clear now in a chondrogenic differentiating mode you're going to have tgf beta bind to its receptor and that's going to then involve a whole series of subcellular aggregate protein interactions to generate the appropriate transcription factor complex and so let me explain that a little bit to you tgf binds its receptor that will induce smad 23 to be phosphorylated once smad 23 is phosphorylated it will dimerize and it'll associate with smad 4 that complex will inhibit runks 2 expression now, once you've made the SMAD 23 dimer with SMAD 4, you have again phosphorylated on the two different subunits of SMAD 23. Once that, that aggregate protein moves into the nucleus, you're going to get now CBP, which is a P300 protein, and the SOX9 transcription factor. Now, all of that will bind to promoter and enhancer regions where there's a SOX9 binding site. So you've got now, again, SMAD23 dimer, SMAD4, and that dimer is phosphorylated on each of the monomers, 
SMAD4, the CBP protein, and the SOX9 protein. That will generate the collagen 2A1 transcription. Now, that's going to occur at low oxygen uh, tensions, 3 to 5%, and the hydrostatic pressure of about 5 uh, megapascal. Now, if there's osteogenic differentiation, rather than TGF functioning, you're going to have the BMP protein. It will bind its receptor, and it will work through the SMAD158, phosphorylating that. SMAD158 will dimerize, and that'll shut down SOX9 expression, thus inhibiting chondrogenesis in favor of osteogenesis. Now, you have a dimer of SMAD158 associated with SMAD4. Then th that complex moving into the nucleus will pick up the RUNCS2, which is no longer inhibited from expression because SMAD23 hasn't complexed here. So you've got RUNCS2 and you still have the CBP protein. So the full transcription complex here will be SMAD4, phosphorylated SMAD158 dimer of that, CBP and RUNCS2. That will bind to enhancer promoter regions that recognize RUNCS2. There you will get transcription of collagen 1A1. That occurs at high oxygen tensions, okay? And relatively low hydrostatic pressure, like 0.1 to 0.3 megapascal. All right, so this is the difference. This is how transcription factors will regulate between chondrogenesis and osteogenesis, okay? So now you understand that um, transcriptional control. So subchondral bone, as, as we've been saying, is one of the tissues that shows alterations in osteoarthritic joints. And you get accelerated remodeling, which is associated with cyst formation and subchondral sclerosis. You are now prodromal for osteoarthritic joint. So there's a correlation between TGF beta and OA severity. And this has been actually reported even in uh, human studies in um, human hip OA. You get an increase in RNA levels of TGF beta 1 and TGF beta 3. And that's been shown in osteoblasts and in that subchondral bone in knee joints with osteoarthritis. This is human studies, but it's also been backed up in rodent models. Back to the rats with experimental OA, and here we call that, remember, anterior cruciate ligament transection. So it's a surgical induction of OA. The acronym for that is ACLT. You treat that with aldronate, and you get an inhibition of subchondral bone resorption, vascular invasion, and then a local release of active, proteolytically modified, TGF-beta. So the activation of TGF-beta is well described in the mouse model for osteoarthritis. Remember, that's the ACLT. So high, proteolytically now activated TGF-beta induces the formation of 
anestin, that's new protein, positive mesenchymal stem cell cluster localized to the subchondral bone. Furthermore, elevated expression of the TGF beta 1 in the osteoblast induces osteoarthritis, while TGF beta inhibition results in decreased development of OA. And again, this was done in that experimental OA model, the ACLT. Now, back with the rodents. Treatment with mice and rats with post-traumatic OA, this is after the surgical insult, the ACLT. When you treat with halofuganone, halofuganone is a TGF-beta potent inhibitor. You get attenuated subchondral bone deterioration and spontaneous OA changes in that subchondral bone. So that means TGF-beta is directly related to prodromal osteoarthritis. And we already explained to you how that works. Uh, remember, we were just talking about the um, osteogenesis versus the, versus the chondrogenesis. Changes in oxygen tension, right? And also changes in whether or not TGF-beta is active or you're getting BMP activation. So that's yet another aspect of this. You, you will work through those same um, SMAD158 adapter protein complexes, but there you're going to get osteoblasts rather than chondrocytes. Okay. Now, remember too, though, the TGF beta at higher concentrations will associate with those same SMAD158 adapter proteins, but that's going to work through that ALK1 receptor for TGF beta. And that will result also now in osteoarthritis because you're going to go directly to synovial inflammation. Okay. So I told you a lot of this is hijacking of normal physiology to pathophysiology. A lot of what's going on uh, with the AC um, corruption. Okay. And now we're going to hopefully finally get into <laughs> some more um, epigenetics, epigenetics. But okay. So let me give you a little bit more background here. This is always important. Prenatal baseline levels of glucocorticoids, that would be cortisol, obviously, in humans, and corticosterone in the rodents, play a very significant role in morphological and even the functional maturation of all of those fetal tissues. High levels of serum glucocorticoids actually will induce abnormal fetal development. And as it turns out, increased levels of glucocorticoids is actually positively correlated with the incidence of several spinal deformations in fetus. So there is an intrauterine programming, and that refers to long-term or permanent functional alterations in an individual due to adverse prenatal conditions during fetal development. And what's going on here is excessive maternal glucocorticoids can trigger intrauterine reprogramming. And this will again result in this, what's known as genetic imprinting. 
that will lead to persistent changes in fetal structure and function. It's been suggested, of course, when you hear the word imprinting, think epigenetic alteration. So that is possible because when you look at these target genes, you don't see any mutations because of this high glucocorticoid content, but you do see methylation, acetylation, marking, authorship on genes which are going to regulate the developmental pathway downstream from the glucocorticoid receptor binding. Okay. And that can lead to osteoarthritis. Now, there's something called human Wharton's jelly-derived mesenchymal cells. They are multipotent, and they can be induced to differentiate into chondrocytes in cell culture. Now, there's evidence that indicates that, the, that these stem cells might be targets of inappropriate reprogramming such that the early life stimulus, such as with the glucocorticoids, will alter the AC fate in adult life, okay? And it matters when the jelly-derived mesenchymal stem cells are altered in gestation, because this is when the epigenetic authorship plays a significant role. As it turns out, there is a chondrogenic differentiation of these MSCs, these specific Wharton jelly mesenchymal stem cells. And, you, and they can be used to mimic cartilage development in utero and, and indeed present with the inflammatory stimulation that occurs under unfavorable conditions in adulthood. Okay, And what you end up getting is this osteoarthritic-like phenotype. So poor chondrogenic differentiation of those WJMSCs from, from human studies and subsequent susceptibility to osteoarthritis-like phenotype has been shown upon interleukin-1-beta stimulation. And this is the direct result of poor chondrogenic differentiation of normal jelly MSC cells induced by excessive cortisol and a subsequent susceptibility to osteoarthritis-like phenotype because we see it linked to interleukin-1-beta stimulation. Okay, So now this is going to result in alterations of COL-2A1 and agrican based on the relative increase in cortisol. Now, this was done in cell culture, okay? So you get an idea now about some of the other associated hormonal influences here. So there is a decreased histone 3 lysine 9 acetylation due to TGF beta receptor 1 participation that presents as a poor chondrogenic differentiation using those Wharton jelly mesenchymal stem cells. All of that is linked to high levels of cortisol. So you get a decrease in acetylation of that TGF beta receptor 
And because you have a decrease, so you have decreased acetylation, what does that mean? That means you get a decrease in TGF beta receptor expression. That then links to the poor chondrogenic differentiation of the mesenchymal stem cells, all of which is induced by excessive cortisol. Okay? So the pathway involved in the uh, poor chondrogenic differentiation of wartan jelly mesenchymal stem cells is linked to that TGF beta signaling pathway because of the decrease in acetylation for the histones that are proximal to the DNA, which would be transcribed for the TGF beta receptor one. Okay. And that's where this fits together very nicely. Now, the RNA expression levels of SMAD 2 and 3 were not affected. So remember I told you SMAD 2 and 3 are necessary for TGF beta signaling. Right? Now, in this instance, you're not, SMAD 2 and 3 are not affected, but rather it is the hypoacetylation of histones in proximal linkage to the TGF beta receptor 1 transcription start. And that's what causes this now subsequent chondrogenic deterioration in adult life. So that's a direct link. It's very interesting, I think, because it suggests that glucocorticoids have a direct effect on the epigenome of the developing fetus, such that prenatal glucocorticoid exposure in the fetus results in an acute and perhaps substantial effect on histone acetylation of many target genes. Now, this has been described before in animal models, but not in the chondrocyte um, system, but more in the hippocampus. And this was in fetal guinea pigs. So there are hypoacetylation patterns in the hippocampus of guinea pig exposed to high levels of corticosteroids. And this is a direct effect, again, on the TGF-beta receptor 1 histone acetylation pattern. And this is how taking that study, the study on the AC, both of the human and of the rodent models, was deduced. So the hypothesis was maybe TGF-beta receptor 1 as being downregulated in both um, the hippocampal model in the guinea pig and also in the rodent model and in the human um, adult occurrence. Remember I told you there was a genetic predisposition? It's actually an epigenetic predisposition because it has to do with the lowering of that common acetylation of that histone. Okay. So it means that Histone deacetylases probably are playing a role directly with the glucocorticoid receptor. So it's not the acetylation, but the induced deacetylation of glucocorticoids that is generates a histone code which decreases the expression 
of the TGF beta receptor 1. That leads then to uh, adult osteoarthritis in humans and in the, uh, the uh, road models. Okay. okay, so let's see where we are here on time. Yeah, so we're, we got about a minute left. I think I'm going to stop there. Let me see if I want to continue on. Well, yeah, I will only tell you that TGF-beta has another role here. It will stimulate synovial inflammation, and it will generate hyperplasia. And this was shown with an intra-articular injection into knee joints with TGF-beta, and that results in swelling and arrhythmia one day after the injection. Now, we mentioned this at the beginning of these lectures. Now, I'm going to go into some detail of that and then move on to more epigenetic reprogramming. But so far, I think we've gotten back finally to the epigenetic discussion that I wanted to. Right? Still, we're talking about TGF-beta uh, and the um, chondrocyte system. But now you understand it has to do with the hypoacetylation of histones that are uh, proximal to the promoter for TGF-beta to bind to and then induce chondrogenesis. And that's inhibited, but it's a delayed effect that adults with that histone code modification because of glucocorticoids uh, in utero results in that disease later in life. Okay, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.